Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for um, the joyful gift to come and worship you. We thank you for the ability to lift our voices together in song, to come before your holy word, to be attentive to your Holy Spirit. And we ask for your guidance now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, our psalm this week, we're going through the Psalms of Ascent, of course, and our psalm this week, Psalm 122, is all about worship. And it begins um, with a statement of the psalmist's joy at receiving this invitation from the pilgrims to go and worship the Lord, to go to Jerusalem for worship. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, verse 1 says. I was glad when they said, come, let's go worship the Lord together. What a good thing it is to remember that worship isn't primarily a duty or an obligation or a mandate that we have, but it is a joyful invitation to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness with brothers and sisters here, with brothers and sisters online, with the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven together, joining in the eternal worship of God. What a joyful, joyful gift that is. I think that the year and a half, a year and a half that we've had of not being able to gather together in the ways that we have, though I'm so grateful for Zoom, but this year and a half of not being able to, to gather together in exactly the ways that we'd like to helps us realize how significant and important it is to gather together in worship and what a joy it truly is. So uh, I was touched just to read those words from Psalm 122 and to feel those in a different way this week. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us come and worship together. Now, as you look at the uh, Psalms of Ascent, um, we're sort of following this pilgrimage that they're going on on their way to Jerusalem. As they're, they're mounting, uh, they're going up the mountain of Jerusalem together, singing these psalms, preparing for worship. And what we see today is that worship is this first real active step that they take. If the Psalms of Ascent are, are meant to be, or at least one of the ways we can interpret them as these sort of like, this invitation to our, our journey of faith, this pilgrimage that we go on in Psalm 120 is that decision to turn away from the world and turn towards God. Psalm 121, as we heard last week, is a warning that says not everything's going to be peachy keen and easy on this journey. They're still going to face hardships, but God is with us. And now this first active step that we take is Psalm 122, and that first act is an act of worship. The journey of faith, the road of discipleship, is marked by worship. It's characterized by worship. That's the very first thing that Psalm 122 tells us. And this psalm highlights four aspects of worship that I think are important for us to consider. They're not the only aspects of worship, and they're more um, focused on coming together as the body. So worship doesn't only happen when we gather together. Of course, we know that. But that's the context of this psalm. It's coming together to go up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord together. So this is, we're going to focus more on these, these corporate aspects of worship, what it does in us as we worship the Lord. And the very first thing that we see, this first aspect of worship that Psalm 122 highlights is that worship grounds us in reality. It gives us a firm footing. So, uh, verse 2 says, Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. The pilgrims have been making their way up to Jerusalem to, to worship the Lord together. And the first thing that they realize upon their arrival is that their feet have been firmly established. 
Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. We have been firmly planted within your gates. Praise be to God. Peterson said, said this. I thought it was interesting. He said it in an earlier chapter of the book, but it resonated with me and it stuck with me. He was talking about um, when we turn away from the world and turn towards God, well, that idea of the world, quote-unquote, is hard to define. And he said this. The world is protean. Each generation has the world to deal with in a new form. World is an atmosphere, a mood. It is nearly as hard for a sinner to recognize the world's temptations as it is for a fish to discover the impurities in the water. There is a sense of feeling that things aren't right, that the environment is not whole, but just what it is eludes analysis. We know that the spiritual atmosphere in which we live erodes faith, dissipates hope, and corrupts love. But it's hard to put our finger on exactly what is wrong. Isn't that true? We can point to a number of things in the world around us that we know are wrong, that they're off. But to try to define the world itself is a much harder task. It's not simply about sort of the collection of those specific things that are off, but it's the conditions, the atmosphere that sort of allow those things to occur and not only allow them to occur but tell tell us that they're normal and sometimes even good and one of the ways i think um, we can feel the world around us this sort of this image of the water that we swim in is the assumption that the physical world is really all there is so the the, the context the culture that we live in pays lip service to, to spirituality. It's in our day and age, you can pray, you can meditate, you can sort of quote unquote be spiritual so long as it's going to bring you peace of mind and it's okay for you. But the underlying assumption is it won't actually do anything in the world. It's not going to have any real effect in the world that we live in. It might make you feel good and that's perfectly fine. You do you but don't actually expect it to do anything in the world. There's no actual higher power that you're actually praying to who's listening to your prayers. It's just this empty void. It's kind of the assumption, the underlying assumption under it. If you want real change in the world, it can only come about through political action or protest or war. That's sort of the underlying atmosphere, or part of the underlying atmosphere that we live in. You can be spiritual if that's meaningful to you, if it means something to you, but just don't expect it to actually do anything in the world. And that atmosphere certainly does, as Peterson said, erode faith, dissipate hope, and corrupt love. And when that pressure is exerted on us all day, every day, it's not something that people will say to us explicitly all the time, but it's just a pressure that's there, sort of in the background. We feel it on us all day, every day, what it does is it disorients us, doesn't it? It's telling us that what you think you believe isn't really real. This is what's really real. It's trying to disorient us and tell us what's true. And so when we come together to worship one true and living God, the very first thing that we're doing is being reoriented or grounded in reality. All week, every week, we're being told that this isn't really true. That the only thing that matters is what physically exists. When we come together, we are being reoriented to him who spoke all things into existence, 
who created us, who saved us, who redeems us, who calls us, who gives us purpose. We're being grounded in reality. All week we're living in this atmosphere that's trying to disorient us and tell us what's real, this, this other false vision of reality. When we come together in worship, our feet are being planted in that which is really true God himself. All week the world is telling us that this world is all there really is. But on Sundays we gather together and we proclaim the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What do we say every week in the creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Whatever else the world might tell me about this world, that's a grounding reality for me. All week, we're being told that our only real hope lies in political action or protest or war, physical violence. We have to take it for ourselves. We gather together on Sundays, and we proclaim that our hope is in Jesus Christ and him alone. That's where our ultimate hope lies. All week, we're being told that our value lies in what we produce or the number of people who know our names, or the number of people who, who like our Instagram stories, whatever it is. When we gather together, we are recalling that our value is found in the very fact that God knows us by name. God created us. God loves us. That's where our value lies. All week, we're being told that we live in a world of scarcity and we have to be fearful, constantly fearful. Every week we gather together and we remember that God is a God of abundance, that he lavishes his grace upon us. We are not in competition with everybody else. We don't have to live fearfully. Our God is a God of abundance. These are the grounding realities. Week after week, we join together to ground ourselves in what is ultimately real in a world that is bent on disorienting us. And the very first thing we gather together as God's people, we are orienting ourselves to him who is ultimate reality. That's the first act of worship. We want to plant our feet in reality, and we need it. Second thing that worship does is that it binds us together, it unifies us as God's people. Verses 3 and 4 say, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which all the tribes go up, all the tribes of the Lord. There's this recognition that it's not just about Jerusalem as a place, but as a place that houses the people of God, that brings the people of God together. It reminds us that worship binds us to one another. It brings us closer to one another. It unifies us, not just some of the tribes go up, but all the tribes. Everyone is invited. Worship is this unifying act. And it's so good. I mean, that's, that's the one thing. Even on Zoom, I'm so grateful to be able to see one another. And we were doing it for that year and a half. And people are still on there. But just those times of turning on our cameras to see that we're not alone in doing this. We are being bound together. And to be back in this place and see one another singing. To see us coming before God's word together. This is a unifying act. It's a gift. Our Ephesians 2 reading said that Jesus offered up his very body and blood in order to bring about unity. His, his body was broken. Just picture that for a moment, like that, that physical body being broken for the sake of destroying that dividing wall of hostility. It's a passage that we know well. 
just take a moment and think about the significance of that. That Jesus was willing to shed his blood for his body to be broken, to break down dividing walls of hostility between us. We need to take that very, very seriously. We live in a world, and I think in a particular time in history, that is essentially trying to turn everyone else into everybody else's enemy. Are they not? Polarization, dividing us. That seems to be almost the goal. If you're not part of the same political party than I am, then you're not just, you don't just think differently, you're my enemy. If you don't share all the exact same beliefs that I do, you, you don't just think differently, you're my enemy. The world tells us that we are to be divided along these lines. The world is hellbent on trying to turn everyone who doesn't agree with us on every little thing into our enemy. And I might get this slightly wrong, but it made me think of um, C.S. Lewis, there's a part of C.S. Lewis's uh, Great Divorce. Does anybody remember this? You can tell me if I get this a little bit wrong. But what I remember is basically it's this sort of vision of hell or, but part of it is that, that he, he sees this place in which people live like hundreds and thousands of miles apart from one another. They're all living in total isolation. Why? Because they're constantly closing in on themselves. The minute somebody disagrees with them, they turn away. And so all of a sudden, like one house is miles and miles and miles. Every house is hundreds of miles away from one another. Because this is what sin does. We want to isolate ourselves. If you're wrong, we just sort of cave in on ourselves. It's this vision of hell that C.S. Lewis paints for us. It's prophetic. I think in some ways... The world is trying to move towards that vision more and more these days. This world wants to make enemies out of anyone who does not agree with us, but worship reminds us that Jesus died to tear down that dividing wall of hostility and make one new man out of the two, living in peace through the cross of Jesus Christ. It doesn't abolish the differences between us, it means that we can actually live at peace together. Slave and free, Jew and Greek, barbarian and Scythian. There are still differences, but they are united through Jesus Christ. That's what worship does. Peace to you who are far off, peace to you who are near through the blood of Jesus Christ. How does Psalm 122 end? It ends with praying for the peace of Jerusalem and peace between us as brothers and sisters. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, verse 6 says. May they be secure who love you, peace within your walls, and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. It's a call to pray for and seek the peace and good of all of those around us. Worship enables us to do that. It enables us to do that because it lifts our eyes and gives us a vision of who God truly is. One who did not count equality with God, something to be grasped and held on to. What did he do? He let it go. Was willing to take on the form of a, of a human and suffer so that there might be peace between us. I think that vision of Philippians 2 is something we've got to hold on to more and more these days. Worship lifts our eyes to him who did that for us to bring about peace. It unites us and it brings us together. It shows us what's most important. We can still have differences. We don't all have to think the exact same way and look all the exact same. 
We can have differences, but in our difference, we look to Jesus Christ, who did not count equality with God's saying to be grasped, but let it go, let go of the power that he had. He didn't need to hold on to, to everything that he thought was right. He was able to let go to serve those around him and bring about peace. We have to be willing to, he says, have that same mind among you. We have to take on that mind as well. Third thing, I'll try and go a bit shorter with these ones. Worship, as we see in Psalm 122, is that it gives us a sense of purpose. There's this beautiful line in verse 4. It says, Jerusalem, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. I love Peterson's translation in the message. He says, all the tribes go up to worship, to give thanks to the name of God. This is what it means to be Israel. That's your purpose, to give thanks unto the Lord. Our purpose is to be a Eucharistic people, a thanksgiving people. First Thessalonians 5.8 was the verse that kept going through my mind this week where Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We often wonder, what's, God, what's my calling? What's God's will for me? What's my purpose? But Paul says it's to give thanks. All of us have different gifts, different talents, different vocational callings that we have in our lives, but that overarching call that every one of us has is to give thanks in all circumstances, to be a thanksgiving people. And we could do that because we actually have trust in God. That no matter what situation I'm in, no matter what I have to face, God is with me. He is for me. I can trust him. This characterizes who I am. We are loved by God. We are kept by God. With Psalm 121, God keeps us safe. He is with us. Therefore, we can, use, we, can, we can live Eucharistic lives. Our lives can be living proclamations of the death and resurrection of Jesus until he comes again. Isn't that a beautiful vision? To live a Eucharistic life that proclaims the death and resurrection of Jesus by giving thanks. And finally, um, Worship also gives us clarity and direction. So verse 5 says, the, the thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. And what this reminds us is that as we gather together to worship God, we are, we are coming together to hear his decrees and his judgments. We want to know what's right. We want to know the path that we are to go on. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We want to know the direction and guidance that you're going to give us. As we said before, we live in this world that is intentionally trying to disorient us and push us in so many different directions. Worship is that act that gives us clarity and wisdom and guidance to know how to live in this world as we submit ourselves to God's holy word. And that act is an act of humility, I want to say. And Psalm, or Isaiah 57, verse 15, I was struck by this verse this week where it says, God dwells in a high and holy place. Did you catch this? And amongst those who are contrite of heart and lowly of spirit. That's the place where God dwells, in his high and holy place. And those who are humble enough to recognize, Lord, I need your guidance in this world. We're humble and vulnerable enough to come before the living God and say, you show me the way that I'm to go. This world is trying to tell me to go in so many different directions. You show me the way that I am to go. And it's in worship that we come and do that. Worship is not just those four things, but I think those might be four things that are helpful for us to think about as we come together in worship week after week. 
That worship orients us to God. It unifies us and binds us together. It gives us a sense of purpose and calling, and it gives us guidance and direction. And what I was thinking about this week is that's something that, you know, you probably, some of you have them here. You probably have your Bibles with you. We got into the habit of not bringing them because we had the screen <laughs> more. But maybe since we don't have the screen going right now, maybe we'll bring our Bibles more often in a little post-it note or something. You could just write those four things. And it's that reminder of this is what I want. But I am coming for. I need to be reoriented to God and his word, to his kingdom. I need, I want to, uni, I want to be unified with my brothers and sisters. We don't all have to agree on every little thing, but I, I'm committed to being unified with my brothers and sisters. I want God's guidance and direction. I need that in my life. And I want to remember that I'm called to give thanks in all circumstances. And so maybe those can even be prayers. Lord, protect me. We come together for worship, but we could pray before we come. Lord, protect me from all the pressures that are exerted on me in this world that are trying to disorient me from you and your kingdom and orient me to you. Lord, don't let me fall prey the way that this world wants me to define everybody else as an enemy. Let me, be, let me love self-sacrificially and submit myself to my brothers and sisters in love. Remind me that my calling is to give thanks in all circumstances, that as I do so, I live as a Eucharistic uh, proclamation of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And grant me the humility to know that I need your direction and guidance. Maybe these could be prayers that we pray as well as we come together to worship the living God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.